think that was on purpose, but I liked it silent. <laughs> Almost silent if you're in the balcony. You might have heard a few things. I'm going to invite you to bring me down just a hair there, uh, sound man, uh, just so it's not quite so ringy. Well, it might interest you to know as we continue our series here that not everybody in the world is open, uh, receptive, willing to listen to the kind of thing that we're talking about in this series, which is to say lament, cries of grief. Um, I read an article recently and this article is entitled, When Tragedy Strikes in China, the Government Cracks Down on Grief. And the article begins, Many innocent lives were lost to tragic events in China in the past month. So far, we haven't learned a single name of any of them from China's government or its official media. Nor have we seen news interviews of family members talking about their loved ones. Those victims would include a coach and 10 members of a middle school girls volleyball team who were killed in late July when the roof caved in on a gymnasium, gymnasium near the Siberian border. Despite an outpouring of public grief and anger around the country, the government never released their names. Bunch of middle schoolers, middle school girls. Social media posts sharing their names and tributes to their lives were censored by the government. In 2015, it was the 442 people who perished when a cruise ship sank on the Yangtze River. Last year, 132 who died in a plane crash in southwestern China. And, of course, the many, many people who have died from COVID and who remain unaccounted for. When you collect your relatives' ashes, their government agents who follow you to make sure that you don't make a fuss. In the past decade or so, the Chinese government has tightly controlled how tragedy is reported by the news media and portrayed on social media. Official media seldom discloses victims' names. Family members run into trouble with the authorities if they mourn the dead publicly or loudly. This kind of emotional repression on a mass scale reflects the party's expectation of the Chinese people to play only one role, that of the obedient and grateful subject no matter what happens to them. One online commentator wrote about the deaths of the volleyball team. After every tragedy, we always hope to find the names of all the victims so that we can silently read them in our hearts and spread them in public. Unfortunately, this humble wish is often difficult for us to fulfill. The article in which this quote was written was censored by Beijing. And the writer of this article from the United States wrote, there's a reason for the enforced omission and silence. In the view of the Chinese government's uh, Communist Party, its rule should be celebrated no matter the circumstances. Victims of public tragedies are inconvenient facts highlighting that not everything under the party's watch is glorious. The deaths 
are a testimony of its failure. You're not allowed to complain in China. You are not allowed to be sad publicly in China. You're not allowed to say in China, everything's not hunky-dory in my life. And this is by formal official policy. What is it in your life informally, unofficially, that keeps you censored. There are no laws against public displays of grief. There are no censors out there saying, don't you be sad where others can hear it. Don't you complain too loudly because folks might think God's not all he's cracked up to be. Christian, whenever you get discouraged, just listen to that road. What do they say? Positive, encouraging, K-love, and you'll feel better. Anesthetize your grief. Numb it. Shh it. It's bad press for the Christian faith. People might think Christians have mess in their lives too. To which the scriptures go, <laughs> not a problem. God in his word is not quite so concerned with us repressing ourselves. We, we do that to ourselves. And if you lived in China, you'd, you'd be required. But here, here, no, it's just, hey, you know, I mean, who likes to be sad? I mean, what, what good is there in that? Well, the biblical writers give voice. They give voice to sorrow and lament. Allison just a few moments ago read from the book of Lamentations. Lament, an entire book of the Bible devoted to crying out to God. And today we continue in our series with the second of five questions that we find on the lips of biblical writers speaking to God in prayer, in lament. Why, God, why? This question for today in the title of today's message is, what are you doing? What are you doing? I'm in Psalm 88. One commentator calls Psalm 88 the saddest song in Scripture. You're going to hear the whole thing today. And you're like, oh my word, I come to church to feel better. Well, uh, we're, we're not going to just stay stuck. And this is, of course, um, what the Christian gospel offers to us. It's not an escape from suffering. It's Good news in the midst of suffering. All right, so here we go. Psalm chapter 88. Uh, I haven't included this in the, uh, in the slides, but the 88th Psalm has the longest title of any psalm. It says here in this translation, a song, a psalm of the sons of Korah to the choir master, 
according to Mahalath Leonoth, a maskil of this guy, Haman the Ezraite. Haman the Ezraite writes, Lord, you are the God who saves me. Day and night I cry out to you. My prayer comes, my, uh, may my prayer come before you. Turn your ear to my cry. I am overwhelmed with troubles, and my life draws near to death. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I am like one without strength. I am set apart with the dead, like the slain who lie in the grave, whom you remember no more, who are cut off from your care. You have put me in the lowest pit, in the darkest depths. Your wrath lies heavily on me. You have overwhelmed me with all your waves. You've taken from me my closest friends and have made me repulsive to them. I am confined and cannot escape. My eyes are dim with grief. I call to you, Lord, every day. I spread out my hands to you. Do you show wonders to the dead? Do their spirits rise up and praise you? Is your love declared in the grave, your faithfulness in destruction? Are your wonders known in the place of darkness or your righteous deeds in the land of oblivion? But I cry to you for help, Lord. In the morning, my prayer comes before you. Why, there it is, why, Lord, do you reject me and hide your face from me? From my youth, I have suffered and been close to death. I have borne your terrors and am in despair. Your wrath has swept over me. Your terrors have destroyed me all day long. They surround me like a flood. They have completely engulfed me. You have taken from me friend and neighbor. Darkness is my closest friend. To which perhaps you say, is that it? That's it. That's it. That's the song. All together now, darkness is... This is a song written for public worship. And the last line of the song goes, darkness is my closest friend. You know any songs like that? I never learned that one growing up in my church. I never learned that song. In fact, I've never heard this text preached in my entire life. And I, I have been in church my entire life. What happened to our songbook? I'll tell you what happened to our songbook. We got a little dose, a little orphan Annie theology. <laughs> the sun will come out. Yeah. Or... The Beatles, if you like, take a sad song and make it better. The fact is, sadness and sorrow and suffering, they don't sell. You want to grow a church, you focus on the positive. 
But if you want your life to, to work, function in the real world, you need to learn how to pray these prayers. Two-thirds of all the psalms in Israel's songbook, the psalms, it's their songbook, two-thirds contain lament. Two-thirds of Israel's songs contain sad songs, and this is the saddest. You say, well, why focus on the sad stuff? Because you live in a real world. You don't live in a pretend world where everything's hunky-dory all the time, right? Where everything's uh, uh, sunbeams, lollipops, and uh, how's the song go? I don't know. I didn't ever learn that one. <laughs> you live in the world that Haman lives in. And last week we learned that even David, the man after God's own heart, lives in that world. Fast forward to Jesus. Jesus lived in that world. You and I live in the world that is broken. And yes, there are times when we look around and say, it appears as though even God himself has turned against me. And that's what Haman is saying. Who is Haman? Well, you may not know this, but his name shows up quite a bit um, in the book of First Chronicles. Turns out Haman was the chief musician, the head worship leader, the Levite in charge of leading all of Israel in its worship. All Israel, when they gathered for worship, Haman would stand at the front and go, okay, he was appointed by King David himself to lead. This wasn't, you know, just some like, you know, backwater worship leader and somebody came across his, his little worship song and said, all right, we'll toss that one in too. No, no, he was somebody. Which makes the psalm all the more remarkable. Because don't we have this idea that if you're somebody, then God, you know, he, he leaves you alone or, 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 or he blesses you and everything goes well with you. That's certainly what Job's friends thought when, when bad stuff happened to Job, right? Job, we're going to hear from him later on in this series. But Haman is praying and crying out from the pit. That word, the pit, it shows up quite a bit in the Old Testament. What is the pit? Well, it's actually a formal title for the grave hole. But not just the grave hole, the hole that you dig, that you go into. No, no, this is the afterlife, the place where the dead go. There's another proper name in this text, and it was translated destruction with a capital D in the text. But in Hebrew, it's Abaddon. And that's the place where the unrighteous dead go for eternal destruction. Haman's not crying out from a hole in the dirt. He's crying out from living death. Meaning, he's not actually physically dead, but he's saying, I consider myself dead and rotting in the grave I'm with all these folks surrounded by, and he's surrounded by what? I consider myself 
set loose among the dead like the slain that lie in the grave. You've put me in the depths of the pit in regions dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavily on me and people won't come around me anymore. It's like I'm laying on the battlefield and everyone around me is slain. And me, for my part, I'm cut off. I'm confused. I don't know what's going on. And I'm caged. I'm trapped. I'm stuck. And I can't get out. You may have heard prayers similar to this one in other parts of the Scripture, but all those prayers tend to end a little bit differently. Like even, even remember that guy that, that got tossed off the boat into the water and then that big old fish swallowed him up? What was his name again? Um, Jonah, that's right. It was really a test, I knew you knew. All right, but let's just say, how does Jonah's prayer go while he's in the pit? Well, Jonah says, you hurled me into the depths into the very heart of the seas and the currents swirled about me all your waves and breakers swept over me once again he's saying god you did this to me but then jonah says i have said i said i have been banished from your sight yet i will look again toward your holy temple see the turn there see the yet see the the big the big nevertheless that's there in the text. Okay, all these horrible things have happened to me, but I will look again to your holy temple. And then we skip a, a verse down and he says, to the roots of the mountains I sank down, the earth beneath barred me in forever. This is death, this is the afterlife, this is the grave. He's dying, but you, Lord my God, brought my life up from the pit. You, rem you will remember that Jesus says, hey, in the same way that Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And this is a picture of death and resurrection. But Haman has got no idea how this is going to turn out. He's got, not just got no idea, he's been crying out day and night, night and day for a lot longer than three days and three nights. He says, from my youth, I have been afflicted. This has been going on for a long, long time. And God, when I look at the story of Jonah, and when I read the rest of the Psalms that end with that sunny day dreaming the the rest of the psalms they end on a high note but not for Haman because Haman is saying God I see you helping others worse than I in other words Jonah was a sinner he was running from God and he had to spend three days and three nights but here I am and I'm leading worship I'm leading the praises of, of Israel I see you helping others, so why aren't you helping me? And he speaks of floodwaters. You may have heard the story of some floodwaters in northern Africa, eastern Libya. A city called Denba, I think it's called. I had never heard of this city before until 20% of the city was washed into the Mediterranean Sea by floodwaters, triggered by a torrential downfall that broke two dams that were retaining water and all that water behind those two dams plus all of that rainwater washed as many as 20,000 people 
into the sea. They've, they've said already we've counted over 11,000 confirmed dead, as many as 20,000 missing. Why, God? That's what they're asking. They're asking right now, why? You know what day this happened on? September 11th. September 11th. We know about September 11th. In fact, we remember. Never forget September 11th. In one day, thousands of people lost their lives because of hate. Who did this? It wasn't hate that washed entire families into the sea. They call it officially an act of God. Is it? Is God out there doing things? I hear this all the time. God would never, no, no, he, he allows things to happen, but he doesn't cause bad things to happen. Tell that to Haman. You have done this to me. You have put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with all your waves. Haman is being swept away by floodwaters. And he doesn't mince words, does he? He doesn't hold back, does he? You have done this to me. I want to tell you a little bit about um, a woman that I, I didn't know for long. Her name is Amy. <clears throat> Her name is Amy. And this is, this is Amy as a young woman. I think that's a rail car. It looks like a rail car, like a, you know, a train car. And this was a time in her life when she was going places. But 15 years ago, Amy was diagnosed with MS. That's Amy in a more recent picture. With, I think, her grandchild. Is that right? Yeah. Diagnosed with MS. And for 15 years, floodwaters swept over her. until the day came when she said, I don't want to live anymore. I don't want to live anymore. This is not life. And a friend of Amy's called me up. I had met Amy, actually, um, a few months earlier. I had met her at a wedding. and uh, She lived in California, and the friend called me up and said, hey, would you try to talk Amy out of physician-assisted suicide? because Amy had for 15 years been watching her body deteriorate and that smile that you see right there had been lost to the floodwaters. And so I got on a Zoom call with Amy and her husband Mario and, and, the, and, the, and the friend. And I discovered on that phone call, Amy didn't know Jesus as Lord and Savior. She, she wasn't a Christian. She didn't have a hope beyond this life, except for, you know, whatever, uh, you know, folks say, hey, I believe in heaven, or hey, I believe, 
you know, that, that, that good things come to good people, those sorts of things, right? The kinds of things that a lot of people put their faith in, right? If you be a good person and you do good things, then good things will come to you in the life that is to come. But for those of us who know better, we get the hair on our arms stand up and go, okay, there's actually more to the story than that. But God forbid any of us should say, hey, come to Jesus and he'll cure you. He'll take care of that MS. And for many of us, we think to ourselves, how can I sell Jesus to somebody who's suffering? I know he'll take your suffering away. And then we read passages like Psalm 88, and we go, yeah, that's not actually the case, is it? And then we start to wonder, was Haman cursed by God? It certainly sounds like that. I've been afflicted by you. I've been under your waves. You have unleashed your deadly floodwaters upon me. And Amy, if God is good, why do I have MS? She never actually said that. But I've heard people say such things from time to time. If God is good, then why, God, why, why? Well, for those of us who know Jesus, we know that suffering is actually a part of God's plan. Take Jesus. From Isaiah 53, surely he, this is Messiah, we didn't know his name was Jesus back when Isaiah wrote these words down, but, but fast forward a few hundred years and turns out, hey, Messiah's name is Jesus of Nazareth. But at this point, hundreds of years before Christ ever came, God through the prophet Isaiah says, surely he, Messiah, Christ, the King, the one who will come to rescue, he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet, we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted, cursed. Paul even says he became a curse for us. But he, Messiah, he was pierced for our transgressions, for our sins. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. So see, in God's economy, the suffering of Christ, the suffering of the Son, the suffering of the King brings salvation to the people of the King. It's not that God sends His Son and, and, and spares Him from suffering. No, no. In fact, the passage goes on to say it was God's pleasure to crush Him, not because God takes pleasure in pain, but because God knows pain produces Something that we would never have without it. Never. And you say, well, that sounds just really, really awful. That God would say, hey, in this broken, sinful, fallen world, I'm going to let some people go through suffering because that suffering will lead to something. James even said, this is a brother of Jesus, he says it this way, count it as joy when you suffer trials of many kinds because as your faith is tested something beautiful will grow, and he calls it perseverance, will grow in your life. 
But check how, how Jesus handled his own suffering. The writer of Hebrews tells us, the writer of Hebrews tells us that during the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. This is no silent, suffering servant. He's crying out to God with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverent submission. So we cry out with Jesus, God, I know that you are good, but what good could possibly come from me dying? Now, this is Haman's prayer. I don't want to die. I don't want to die. I want to live. You won't let me. He's not suicidal. He wants healing. I don't know if it's a physical affirmity. I don't know. He, he, he wants deliverance. He says at the beginning, he says, Oh God of my salvation. He wants to be rescued. He wants to be taken out of the pit, out of the cage, out of death. He wants to be let loose back on a world with friends again. His friends have been taken from him. He doesn't like being hanging out with darkness as his only friend. I want to live, Haman says. So I'm just asking, I'm just asking, God, what are you trying to do? Are you trying to kill me? There was a guy you probably know his name. There's a guy. He went by the name of Saul for a little while. No, not that Saul, not David Saul. This Saul, Saul in the New Testament, a guy from Tarsus. And man, he was a mean sucker. He found out people were worshiping Jesus, and he goes after them, and he's taking them and he's throwing them in prison, and he's doing everything he can to try to crush the folks crying out to Jesus, the folks asking for salvation from Jesus because he thinks this whole Jesus guy is for the birds, all right? He thinks he's not really Messiah. And so Saul is trying his best to crush the Hamans, to crush the yous and the me's in, in his day, the people who really trust in Jesus. And when God finally shows up to Saul, on his way to put more people in prison. He appears to him as a light and in the person of Jesus Christ. He says, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asks. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. You're causing suffering to me by hurting my people. And then Jesus taps a Christian on the shoulder and says, I want you to go meet this guy, Saul, because I want you to tell him something. My plan is to show Saul how much he must suffer for my name. Well, you know Saul because he became, what was his name after he was converted? He went from being Saul to being Paul, right. Paul changed his name. Apparently, Saul, the same name of the guy that persecuted David, the name of the guy that was persecuting the church, he was like, I'm going to change my name. 
I'm going to go with a different name. And you know him because he comes up with some of these, the best one-liners out there. You know this one. You know this one. He says, I have learned to be content whatever the circumstance. And here it is. Here's the secret. Here's the secret. Say it with me now. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Any of you have that on a bracelet on your wrist? Anybody? Yeah. And it's true, right? Another way to say it was, I can handle everything because Jesus is strengthening me. And, 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 and listen, he wrote those words from a jail cell. Paul wrote those words from a jail cell. And then here's another. Uh, he had recently gotten out of jail and he was on his way back to Corinth and he writes and he tells them, hey, I had this thorn in the flesh. I have this thorn in the flesh. And three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it from me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. Therefore, get this, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, and difficulties. And then here's the other one-liner. Say it with me now. For when I am weak, then I am strong. He even goes on to say this in the book of Colossians. He's writing to some other folks from prison. Yes, of course, from prison. He writes, now I rejoice in what I am suffering for you. And I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions. Do you get that? Did you see what he said? What is lacking in Christ's afflictions, I'm making up the difference. That's what he just said. I mean, if anybody else said that, we, we would be like, you can't be a preacher. I mean, you, what you're saying is so inappropriate. Uh, Christ's afflictions are enough. They're enough all by themselves. But he's not talking about salvation, is he? Because you see, Paul's not interested in, in suffering to provide salvation. Christ did that once for all. No, what he's saying is, as I'm suffering, it's for you, for your encouragement, for you to see uh, somebody who's holding on and not letting go for your encouragement. And I'm doing all of this for the sake of his body, which is the church. But guess what? This, this it went on for a while. And by the end of Paul's life, he wrote these words to his close friend, someone he mentored. He said, I'm already being poured out like a drink offering. And the time for my departure is near. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. What's he saying? I'm cooked. Now. Now. There is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. What gets, you to, what gets you to really long for Jesus to show up? What gets you to really say, oh, Lord Jesus, quickly come. Is it when life's grand? 
Is it when you got a bank account full of money and all your relationships are going great and you've got retirement planned out through the next 150 years and your health is great and you haven't got a single conflict between you and anybody? No, 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 no. No. It's when you're cooked. It's when you're poured out. It's when you're in the pit that you need Jesus to come. But I didn't try to convince Amy not to take her life. I didn't. I thought to myself, okay, so I, t I convinced her not to take her life. I'm on the Zoom call, and there she is with her husband. And her daughter, Amanda, is really, really concerned and grief-stricken, not wanting her mom to end her life unnaturally. And so to a certain extent, a little bit of pressure on me here, but no, I'm thinking to myself, no, 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 no. It's not that she would, whether she holds on to this life or lets go of this life, it's whether or not she holds on to the one who can save her for eternity. And so I told her about Jesus. And I told her, I said, I'm gonna be honest with you. Coming to Jesus is not gonna take away the pain and suffering, but it will give you what you need to endure. And Amy trusted in Christ that day. And she prayed right there. I only met her it was because of her friend who had been praying for years and years for Amy to come to faith in Jesus. And she did that day. And then when Amy passed, she got on that train and she went before the king, the righteous judge, because you see, she had begun to long not for death. She had begun to long for the appearing of her Savior. And so she got on that train and she went before the King, the Lord, and received her crown. She endured the suffering to the very end and did not give up. And her last breath in this life became the first breath she took in the life to come. Hallelujah. So, with Haman, with Amy, we Cry, God, there's nothing you can do to convince me not to trust, not to hope, not to wait, not to long like Paul longed and endured and overcame every struggle, every fear, every 
hole in the ground from which we cry, God, I won't give up on you. As Job says, though he slay me, yet will I hope in him. Great faith will keep you crying out to the Savior, even when he's not talking back. Let's pray. Ah, Lord God. I praise you. I praise you that you are the God of our salvation. You are the God who offers to us redemption. Setting free, that's, that's what it is. You, you set us free. And in this life, the redemption, well, it's, it's for our souls, it's for our spirits. That we would no longer reside under the power of sin, our sins, and the sin nature that we inherited from our first parents. We would no longer be under sin's power, but that we would be redeemed, set free to walk in newness of life. No longer shackled. But God, the rest of the story is not yet written. While you've sent your Son to be the Savior of the world, the Redeemer of our souls, we are still laboring in this life. We are still walking through life in a fallen world where the very best people end up suffering the worst. Of course, the very best being your Son, our Lord Jesus, the very best there ever was, suffered the very worst that ever could be for us. Not to set us free from suffering, but from sin and from shame and to give us a down payment within our souls, within our lives, within our hearts, as a promise to do the rest of the job when he returns. When he's bringing with him, Paul poured out like a drink offering. He's bringing with him Amy. who breathed her last and then stepped into glory, he's bringing her. No longer to suffer, no longer to be afflicted, but in a new body, along with Paul, along with Haman, and along with all who long for his appearing. So for today, we wait, we hope, we trust, and we persevere, not stoic, not stiff, but with tears and cries 
to the one who can save us from this suffering, save us from floodwaters, save us from MS, from cancer, from disease, from death itself, and raise us up forever. We wait on you, O God of our salvation. We will not stop crying out to you. And we will hold fast to the hope we have that you are coming soon. It's in your name we pray, Lord Jesus.